Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. My name is Njideka Konyele Crosby, and I am an artist. My name is Sisi Dangarembwa. I am a writer and a filmmaker. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. That I was so nervous that if, if I was centering a Nigerian experience, would people get it? And also because I wasn't interested in translating things for people. When I came out on bail, I felt that I had to keep speaking, uh, to be silenced and, and to give in to fear would just make what I had done completely irrelevant. You know, it, it would detract from the power of it and the usefulness of it. And so I have continued to talk. And I, I try to speak the truth as I see it so that I can stand behind it. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing, the artist Njedeka Akunyili Crosby and the writer and filmmaker Tsitsi Dangaremga. Njedeka is a groundbreaking visual artist who has also had an extraordinary journey going back and forth between Nigeria, where she grew up, and the U.S., where she now lives and works in Los Angeles. A lot of that story she tells through her paintings, which bear the visual signifiers of her upbringing and express her parallel experiences of Nigeria and America. When we asked Njideka who she most wanted to speak to on the podcast, she immediately said, Tsitsi Dangaremga. Tsitsi, who was born in Zimbabwe when it was still Rhodesia, is the author of a landmark of post-colonial literature, the novel Nervous Conditions. Published in 1988, it was the first novel to be written in English by a Zimbabwean woman and was recently named by the BBC as one of the top 100 books that have shaped the world. The book and its teenage heroine, Tambuzai, has become important to many young women who grew up in Africa, including Njideka. This year, Tsitsi published a new novel, This Mournable Body, which returns to Tambuzai, now middle-aged. The book was recently shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize, but in July, after it had already received international acclaim, Tsitsi was arrested in Zimbabwe while protesting government corruption. She's out on bail now, but her trial is still pending. Njedeka and Tsitsi, thank you so much for coming on and being part of this conversation. I wanted to begin in a maybe less obvious way and uh, Njedeka, ask you a question first and really ask you how you first came across Tsitsi's work, which I know has been very important to you, and, um, and, and maybe take us through the experiences of reading Nervous Conditions and, and, and what led to uh, you know, your, your interest in the, in the work. I actually came to Nervous Condition late in life, given that it was one of those books I felt 
lots of people in Nigeria who were into literature read. A friend of mine from Yale, Nancy Mutiti, had um, a reading group that was based in New York and the members were people from various African countries living in, in New York at that time. So when I met up with Nancy, she was, we were talking about the reading group and she mentioned that they were reading Neville's Condition. And I said, oh, I know that book. And so I got my copy and I finished it in a couple of days. And it was, I, it, every once in a while you come across a book that you feel so, that resonates with you. Um, I was just blown away. I, I felt, you know, I just felt like this is what I want to do with my work, but this is just so rich and deep and complex. And it just set the bar for me for where I felt um, my work could go, my narratives. Um, and it was just like a, a work that was very unapologetic about the people it centered. Um, in storytelling and in the narrative. And so I, I just, <laughs> I couldn't stop talking about it after that. I made my husband read it. And then of course I ordered the book of Not Immediately, which I read, uh, but it's it stayed with me since then. I've gone back to both Never's Condition and the book of Not a uh, number of times since then. I was surprised after I'd written Nervous Conditions that there was so much resonance with people, young women especially, from different parts of the African continent. I had written the story really uh, to relate to Zimbabwean women what I thought some of the challenges that they would have to face were. And... Um, I really did it just to enable them to see their lives reflected and to maybe put pointers to how they could engage with these challenges or at least prepare for the fact that they would have to meet them. And so it was a revelation for me as well when I realized that many other people outside Zimbabwe were identifying with those challenges and those circumstances. And the funny thing was that it wasn't even outside Zimbabwe. It was like in the world, I would go like to Sweden and have people tell me, oh, yes, I also came from a small village and I could relate entirely. So it really was phenomenal. I, I am really so grateful that this book resonates with the young African women. And um, I think the challenges are still with us because I wrote the book when I was a young woman, which was in the 1980s. And yet I still meet teenagers, women in their 20s and 30s today who do say uh, very much as Njideka has that the book resonates with them today. So in a way that's positive that they, people have something where they can see themselves but also it is a bit sad for me because it means we haven't moved on that far from the situation that we had in Zimbabwe where women were facing those kinds of challenges 40 years ago. And you personally, of course, confronted all, I mean, you, you, you felt all of those challenges and, and had to navigate them and had to navigate leaving, of course, too, right? I wanted to write a book that would be useful to young women in my part of the world where they would recognize themselves. So now growing up, I grew up in a very conservative family. Um, it, it was a little bit schizophrenic 
because while it was very conservative in terms of patriarchy, it was very emancipated in terms of education. So here on one hand, I was being encouraged to do well at school uh, with all that entails, which is developing your mind and engaging creatively with your subject matter at school. But at home, I was in a completely different world where the, my siblings, my male siblings, were treated in a way that was very different from the way I was treated. And so I think that is why I found myself engaging with the problematic. Um, I had to engage with the problematic because I was experiencing it. And it wasn't that easy for me to reconcile those two things, that I was expected to excel at school and do well and have ambition for life. But at home, I was expected to, be, uh, to, to, to behave in um, uh, a way that uh, was quite submissive and I was not expected to assert myself. And then, of course, I had been in England when I was very young. My first memories are in fact of England. Um, and that was from about the ages of two until six. So there was that dimension as well. Um, I was experiencing this dichotomy in the situation where that I had come into a, as a six year old. So it, it was a bit of a challenge for me. And what I did see when I was growing up in the 1960s and as I began to reflect on this was that the society was gradually going in that way. So I realized that more and more young women would be facing those kinds of conflicts. And those were the kinds of issues that I wanted to put into the book. So, you know, and, and Judeka, I would, this is a maybe a um, hard question to answer and certainly we we can turn to something else, but you know, to be to grow up where you grew up, stop through in, in Lagos, end up going to Swarthmore in the United States, and then finally at Yale in an MFA program. And I'm curious if you could describe a little bit, you know, even just in general terms, what that, if you think back on that journey. Kind of like what Cece mentioned for herself. My family has always been very big on education. Um, I mean, a story I had, I remember being in my first year grad school at Yale and Peter Halley came in and said something like, oh my God, your parents must be so proud. And my reply was like, no, this is expected. <laughs> <laughs> like this, this is what you're meant to do. This is not like the shock. Um, because my dad was a surgeon. My mom, my dad is a surgeon. My mom had a PhD in pharmacy. So education has always been big in my family. We were expected to do very well at school. Um, I felt you know most of the conversations at when you came back from boarding school was about your results. <laughs> so you know like you had to present it, and you were nervous if you got something that wasn't an A. Um, so education has always been a big part of my life. So of course everybody expected me to go into medicine, and what brought my siblings and I to the United States for education was that my family won the green card lottery. Um, which, of course, this administration is trying to stop and saying a lot of lies about it. So when I came to the United States, it was with the intention of going to university to study medicine. So I think the big shift that happened for me was I had gone to the Community College of Philadelphia um, right after I moved to 
the US and I took a painting class as a lark. I just wanted something that wasn't too difficult in my mind. I thought this will be easy. It will be an easy A for me to get because of course I'm always thinking in terms of A's and how to make my grades as good as they can be. And I ended up falling in love with it. And um, art had not been a part of my life growing up. And that's not to say there are not phenomenal artists and schools of art in Nigeria. I just was not a part of my immediate family and family life. And so after I took painting classes at the community college, I went on to Swarthmore College to get my undergraduate degree. And I took so many art classes that I ended up majoring in biology and studio arts. And I think Swarthmore was the place where the big shift happened. And I, I, with every class I took, you end up engaging with the professor. A couple of them are still very good friends of mine. We went to museums, we had deep conversations about the works we were looking at. And in those moments, I helped me see what art can do in a way that I hadn't thought of before. Because when I was young, if you mentioned art, I really thought of it as just, you know, you paint something in front of you to look like the thing in front of you. And when I was in undergrad, I really began to understand that it was something that could be used to talk of bigger issues. And I think once that understanding started coming, I began to see a path for what I could do with art in talking about things that were important to me. So at that point, I also realized that Nigeria, as I knew it, was, um, wasn't really known to people around me. And so I started thinking of art as a way to talk about this complex, beautiful, has its issues, but interesting place I grew up in and I loved. And also the like cultural renaissance I was seeing that was happening there in the early 2000s with literature, music, um, movie, fashion, art. Got it. And it was in a funny way, the, the hardest part of the conversation, it sounds like, must have been saying that you were changing from this medical path to an art path. I think my parents, my the expectations for me was that I would be a doctor. And it's one of those, I understand where they're coming from. It's, um, I got an opportunity that is very rare. And I, I got to leave my little town and go to Queens College, which was the best um, boarding school, all girls boarding school in the country. And it's very competitive to get into it. And I got into it. I got this really amazing education my family had this stroke of luck and I got the chance to come to the United States and get an education. And so it, it just felt like with all those opportunities afforded to me, the expectation was I was going to do something that was not a risk. I was going to do something like medicine that would bring pride to my family. You know, your parents can walk around and be called mama doctor, papa doctor. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, and so to, to decide to be an artist, and it was also, again, thinking this was something that was not familiar to them. They, they do not know anybody who is an artist. There was a lot of concern, a lot of fear. Um, you know, it, it, the, the reaction was, but you're so smart. Why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I also 
but it, it it wasn't something that worried me. I understood. So I saw it as a challenge to make work that when they saw it, they'll understand why I had this need to go into this field, while why I felt the urgency and why I felt it was necessary. And um, Cece, I'm actually curious about how you got into writing and if there's any overlap with expectation for you. I've just been grinning away in Judeca because <laughs> I have a very similar story. Um, did sciences at school, went to, into medicine, really started my pre-med and decided that wasn't for me. <laughs> and this was in uh, the nine, early 1980s. And I'd actually left the country to study at Cambridge and I came back to Zimbabwe in 1980, which was the time of independence, because, you know, it simply did not make sense to me that here I was in a town where no one knew anything about Zimbabwe in Cambridge. No one was interested. And, and yet a war was ending. There was a huge conference in London. A, a whole country was changing its trajectory. And I thought, this doesn't make sense to me. If I am Zimbabwean, I should be engaged. I should be involved with these things. So I came back and um, I told my parents I would go and finish my medicine in the beginning. And then I realized, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm going to stay and make my way here. And um, it was a very difficult conversation, which extended over months, <laughs> in fact, over years. <laughs> oh, I, I'll jump in after you. <laughs> Yeah. And I don't think I was forgiven until uh, nervous conditions began to do well in 1989. Yeah, I wanted to say in Nigeria, in my part of the country, Igbo, we have this saying that it's just like, there's some news you don't give over the phone. And so when I decided I was going to be an artist, which was at the end of my time at Swatmore, I moved back to Nigeria for a year. And it was to do my, I had to do this youth service thing, but I also wanted that time to talk to my parents because I just felt like you just don't pick up the phone and say, um, I'm not doing medicine anymore. And so it, for me, it was a year. I mean, and I don't mean like a year of we have this conversation once a month. I mean, a year of this was a daily conversation. I mean, to the point where, Family friends would come to the house and my mother would turn to them and just be like, please help me talk to Njideka. <laughs> Njideka wants to go and do art. Can you imagine? Please tell her that nothing beats medicine. <laughs> and then I just had to like sit down and smile and take it all. But I also felt like this was such a jarring change for them that if I if if it took that long to talk about it, they could tell that it wasn't. Um, just something I decided randomly. Like I had thought about this deeply. I had thought about it for years. This was not something I could be talked out of, um, you know, by one big family conversation. And <laughs> I think um, in terms of being forgiven, I was in Lagos a couple of years ago, like three years ago for a talk and my dad was there. And it was actually very sweet because he got up. He asked the person doing the program if he could give a speech. And I thought, oh, no, my dad loves speeches. This will be very long. Um, but he got up and it was so sweet and sentimental. But he pretty much like publicly apologized. Um, but he said, like, you know, he was talking to the parents and saying, don't do 
what I did. I was very angry when she said she wanted to do art and I tried to talk her out of it. And look what we would have missed. And I was like, trying not to tear up. It was, um, it was very sweet. Yeah, do you know that's amazing in Judeca because I had a similar experience um, in the around the turn of the millennium. I'd done a documentary and at my launch, my dad was one of the speakers and he also had that to say that, look, you know, when she came in and said she wanted to tell stories and this was what she was going to do for a living, we had no idea, but now we see her films and we read her books and it's amazing, you know, looking back, one can't blame them because of the nature of the society that they grew up in. Um, I'm sure that my mother, for example, never read a book with a black woman in it when she was growing up and going to university. So that's the world that they came from. But, but it really, uh, I found that it demanded a lot of me to manage to do what I wanted in life and still keep those family relationships on track. But, you know, these are the courses we have to go, um, the courses we have to traverse in our lives and all's well that ends well. I wanted to ask you, Titi, about uh, going back, um, the, the, the version, it's funny, the edition of Nervous Conditions I most recently got or have has an interview at the end, very brief interview with the publisher. Um, and you talk about leaving Germany and, uh, and you say at the end, life is difficult in Zimbabwe at the moment, but my soul breathes more freely there. And I'm, I, I, I sort of wanted to ask about that returning and, and changing your life away from, you know, the European centers back, back to Zimbabwe. Yes, I went to Germany to study film and I was there for about a decade, 11 years. And then I decided to come back with my family uh, because I also wanted my children to have a Zimbabwean experience, know where their mother came from, meet the family here, learn the language and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, Germany was a relief in a way because I had wanted to get away from an environment that was so informed by colonial past. And, and so when I was in Germany, it was the time of the reunification and none of those issues were at the fore. So that was really good for me. But on the other hand, it meant that there really wasn't a space for people like me. You know, we, we just didn't feature in the national discourse, in the national imagination. And and my German never became very good because I just learned it on the way as I went to school. And um, so it, there really wasn't a life for me in Germany. And then again, I came back similar to what happened in England. England, I came back when Zimbabwe uh, came became independent from being Rhodesia. Uh, I came back in 2000, which was another critical moment in Zimbabwe's history with the land reform. Uh, and uh, it was the end of a period of history that had been determined by the agreement in England in 1979 that led to independence in 1980. So we'd had 20 years and the constitution was being changed completely. And there was a lot of upheaval. And again, I also felt that there's no point in being away from my country and, and just being a spectator, especially in an environment where 
I am not particularly relevant. And I kept on seeing footage on German TV about what was going on in Zimbabwe. And I felt, you know, I can't live on these interpretations. I need to witness this for myself. And, and what I've seen is that my writing is a lot of witnessing. I think this comes from a situation where I do travel abroad a lot, even up until now, and people don't know. So people get their news from other sources, which are not direct sources. And so it was really important for me to put something else out there that witnessed from within. And um, so both times it has been a celebration to come back, even though it might have been difficult and there might have been challenges. And of course, now in Zimbabwe, the situation is extremely sad. The repression and oppression and misery resulting from an economic decline really just continue to increase by the day. And I might have said my soul breathes more freely here. Um, I would say my soul breathes more sadly here now, but it does breathe. This is the thing. I do feel that my soul breathes. And I, I feel that this breath that I have here is part of the whole being of the nation. And that for me is very important. Um, I did read that interview and that sentence about my soul breathes freely. I, I just, oh, you know, every once in a while you read something and it's it's as if somebody took the words out of your heart and put it in print. And because I keep telling people every time I step off the plane in, the, in Nigeria, when I go back home, it makes me realize that there is a weight I carry with me when I'm out of the country, when I'm living in the United States. In the moment when I'm living here, I don't realize it, but I know that I have it because I know what it feels like to step home and exhale and feel that weight come off you and just feel your soul breathe. Um, and so for me, I've, I've been thinking a lot the past month about moving back to Nigeria and for reasons that are similar to some of the things you've said, which is I'm at that point where I've, I've been in America long enough that I'm beginning to feel like a spectator in my relationship to Nigeria, which has always been so close to me. And also feeling like it's very hard to get to like get to know the country from here because it's such a vibrant space that is constantly changing and it's hard to keep up with the change if you're not living there. I try to go home a couple of times every year. Of course, um, this year has been an exception and I've not gone back this year, but also I've not gone back for long intervals the past few years because I had little kids um, but what's happening is I notice that every time I go home, I'm, I'm more removed from a space I used to know so well. You know, the slangs are changing, the, the hot places to go are changing. I mean, those seem superficial, but if you're using it as a marker. And, and I'm just getting to a, a point where, um, yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm feeling more homesick than I have in a while. And also, as you mentioned, having kids changes that. I talk to my kids a lot about Nigeria and show them the pictures I use in my work. And I talk to them about my upbringing, but it wouldn't, it just at some point, I feel like they need to spend an extended period there and 
it, it's like get to experience the world their mother grew up in. And I think also just with the political climate in the United States, for a long time, my work has talked about how I'm, I've both embraced being American and being Nigerian. And I think sometimes people feel like to be American, you have to negate the place you came from. And I disagree with that, like assimilation as part of reaching the American dream. And in my work, I'm trying to show that that's not the only way. You can still hold on proudly to where you came from. I speak the language to my kids. I celebrate my culture, but I am also American. But with this administration, that has been really tough because they almost felt like in voting Trump in um, the, the, the United States, like the, some people in the United States have have like, said they don't, it's almost like said they don't see me or people like me as part of the country. If you think of the anti-immigration rhetoric that he wrote to the White House and thinking of how I fit so many things that he is against. I'm a black woman, I'm an immigrant. And so it's, it's, been, it's been difficult to feel connected to, to the United States the past few years. So that mixed with just being homesick, but also seeing what's happening in Nigeria and how the people of my generation are standing up and fighting back and protesting the government. I mean, the Nigeria I grew up in, protest was unheard of. And so just what's happening feels so important and relevant. Like this is a, 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 a seminal moment in the country. And I do feel like, um, I, I do feel being a spectator is not enough. Titi, uh, you know, I, of course, there, this summer you were protesting and, and were arrested for protesting. And I wonder if, if you would talk about the parallel experience you had, I mean, uh, in Zimbabwe over the summer, and I would imagine continue to have as you continue to be vocal um, about you know, the mismanagement that, you, that you're seeing? Yes, Lucas. Um, the trajectory of my country has really been extremely saddening. And to be honest, when I wrote Nervous Conditions in the 1980s, I had no idea that I would end up standing on streets with posters and being arrested for it. I would have laughed if anybody had even suggested that that was possible or might happen in any way. But it got to the stage where I just see the decline day by day in the country. I see the hardship that people are having to contend with day by day in the country. I see the signs of mismanagement in so many things, the decline in the health services and the mortality rates going up, um, the decline in sanitary services, the increasing incidences of diseases like dysentery and cholera, the fact that when you turn your tap on, no water comes out. And then, of course, uh, 2017 with the coup, we took a, a, another step towards what really is beginning to look like damnation, where uh, the military nature of the government became increasingly apparent and military in a very negative sense. 
um, in, in a very commandeering sense where everything has to go along one track and um, one is concerned with enemies and that's the whole rhetoric now. Who are the enemies? We have to stop the enemies. And increasingly, it's the people becoming the enemy. Because if you have a military entity that is in power, the military is there to protect against enemies. So if there are no enemies out there, the enemies will obviously be inside. So this is uh, what we are going through. Um, the issues with the currency, uh, the fact that we don't have a Zimbabwean currency, and then they introduce other currencies and change things at will so that people have money in US dollars and the next day they wake up, it's in some currency they have conjured up, which has no value. So my mother, for example, uh, died a pauper because she had money in the bank. She had saved all her life and uh, suddenly they changed the currency. So it was devalued and became absolutely valueless. And, uh, you know, that's happened to a lot of the older generation in this country they are absolutely destitute. And it looks as though the authorities do not care. You know, they're busy flying around in private jets. They're hiring helicopters to go from one town to another, which you could do by road in a couple of hours, this kind of thing. And it just got to the stage where um, when I looked in the mirror, I had to question myself and say, hey, what are you up to? What are you doing about this? You're a citizen of this country. This is why you said you're coming back twice, once from England and once from Germany, and here you are. So what are you going to do? And I felt I couldn't stay at home and uh, just let these things happen. So then in July, one of our opposition politicians called for a demonstration. He said against corruption, and I felt that was good that he was calling the nation to action so I was on board with that. My questions were around the reason for the demonstration. I felt that corruption was too narrow. I feel that corruption is a symbol of other things that are not working well, that are very wrong. And we needed to engage with those as well. But um, I decided to, to get on board with the demonstration and I was also vocal in uh, supporting the idea to demonstrate and telling people that we do need to take our future into our own hands. Um, and then I think the authorities must have realized that there was uh, a big reaction to this call and people did want to go out, even though it, it was during a time of uh, COVID. So we had COVID regulations that uh, put... Uh, that curtailed movement so you could only move certain distances and of course this is all ridiculous uh, this is just done to stop people meeting and talking and uh, agreeing on what can be done um, in spite of that people did want to go out and then because the government realized that they then declared the the demonstration illegal and that was really for me the last insult simply to say that because we do not like this demonstration, you may not demonstrate, but we have a constitution which ZANU-PF itself, the governing party, formulated with other political parties where we have the right to demonstrate. And even if I had been in two minds at that point, I thought, no, um, my freedom cannot be curtailed to that extent. I will be out. 
So um, I did ask whether any women would want to demonstrate with me because I feel that on the whole, Zimbabwean women have been silent. And we have seen that in other countries when the women decide to take a stand, for some reason, things begin to move. This is something that I have seen. Uh, so I did uh, put out a call and ask whether anybody would demonstrate with me. And then a woman who is a friend of mine um, said that, yes, we could demonstrate together. You know, it was part of our strategy because the government had become increasingly oppressive. And so we had advised people not to demonstrate on their own because if you have a repressive government of that nature and you're on your own, there, there is... There's no way that um, you can fend for yourself or protect yourself in that situation. You'll just get a group of people coming and taking you. Luckily, this one woman, friend of mine, agreed that we could go and demonstrate together. And so that's what we did. We met at a shopping center. We walked down the road and we, there weren't many people on the road. Everybody was cowed. Almost everybody was afraid. There were very few pedestrians. In fact, I don't think I saw any, and there were very few cars. So we felt that demonstrating at that place would not have the impact that we wanted it to. So we walked down the road to an intersection where people coming from all directions would see us, and that's where we stood. And uh, we had a couple of people come up and just film us. I, I'm sure these were state agents and that uh, the, their videos will be used against us. Um, we were just standing by the roadside and then uh, a state car came by and did a U-turn and somebody got out and spoke to my friend. And then the riot vehicle, a whole riot vehicle with about 20 policemen in riot gear inside it came down the road and we were told to get in. And um, I felt there wasn't any point in trying to talk to them. I mean, honestly, if somebody sends a whole riot vehicle to arrest two women, that's not an, uh, a situation where you can talk sense. <laughs> so, so we just got in and they took us to one police station and they sat us on the floor for about two hours. And that's the norm in that police station. It's my neighborhood police station. So we sat on the cold concrete floor. It was winter, so it was very cold. And then they took us to the central police station in the city where we met up with some other people who had been arrested. And uh, I spent the night in prison. And since then, I've been to court about five times. The whole process is dragging out. And I have another court date in November. It will be at the end of November. And I hope that they will give me my trial date and then I wait for the trial. But um, I, had to in, I had to consider very deeply whether I would continue to speak or whether I would be silenced when I came out on bail because I, I was allowed to come out on bail. And um, I felt that I had to keep speaking uh, to be silenced and, and to give in to fear would, would just make what I had done completely irrelevant. Uh, you know, it, it would detract from the power of it and, and the usefulness of it. And so I have continued to talk. And I, I try to speak the truth as I see it so that I can stand behind it. 
you know, the the state discourse at the moment is that anybody who does anything is being paid by a foreign government. For example, in the run-up to the demonstration on the 31st, state agents on social media were putting out tweets saying, oh yes, all those people who are going to demonstrate are going to go to the U.S. Embassy and be paid $20. It is just so ridiculous. It's sad. When we were actually picked up on the way to the police station, that was one of the questions that the police asked me, who's paying you? I really became very offended. And I said to the young man, I said, do you really think that anybody who does anything in this country has to have someone telling them what to do? That there is not a single Zimbabwean who is capable of looking at a situation for herself or himself and deciding in this situation, I will do this. I said, why do you have such a low opinion of Zimbabweans? And that led into a very interesting conversation because he then said to me, well, you know, we black people, um, we have a certain place in life and we know that white people have a different place in life. And we, we took this conversation from there. And it was so shocking. I was almost in tears by the time I got to the police station. Thank you for sharing that, Titi. Yes, thank you. You know, I haven't actually spoken about that uh, in public before because I've been concerned. But but it, it's such a, a deeply moving and saddening thing that here we have a state that talks about black emancipation. And yet that is what they're teaching their young people to think that that they do not have the same value as human beings, as other people. And, you know, um, we are talking, you are in the United States, and I think that it was a story I wanted to bring into this discussion because the the issue of colour and the way the the results of race can actually form the person – are really um, not very well understood. And some people in the United States might look at a country on the continent here in Africa and think at least they have independence, at least they have black rule. But what does that do if we still have a whole generation of young people? These were very young men, probably in their 20s, maybe early 30s, what good is this black rule if it is not forming our young people into to whole beings who, who value themselves? You're so right. And it's such a, like, uh, you know, it's like my, my heart is sad and heavy hearing this, but also knowing it's not just in Zimbabwe. And I think Chinua Chebet said something along the lines of one of the things that happens when you're colonized is just, they they make the people feel that that their cultures, their food, their languages, like the things that make them who they are, are inferior, and that just really sips in really deep. And I think something I still seeing today in my generation in Nigeria is people standing up and questioning that. Um, for the first time and just seeing the power in that and just people really thinking like, why can't I teach my children my language? I mean, I have 
people in my parents' generation who did not teach their children the local language because they felt like if you speak the language, you're not, you won't be considered smart, which is so sad to think of what has happened to like the, the, the psychological state of a, a group of people when they feel their language, learning this language will make you dumb or like having the accent when you speak English will mean that you're not you know, somebody who is high class or somebody who is educated. And so, so much of what you see happening in my generation is like us trying to shed that baggage that has been in the country since we were colonized by the United Kingdom and seeing people trying to stand up and own our stories and tell our stories. Um, I think something that has done it so well is Nollywood. And um, Cece, you mentioned earlier on, like someone like your mother might not have read a book that centered a black woman or had like an image of a black woman on the cover. And I was thinking of the first time I watched a Nollywood movie and Nollywood is a Nigerian movie industry, which is like the third biggest in the world right now. Um, but I remember they do in Nigeria, they show movies on Saturday evenings, like Saturday really late at night. And I had fallen asleep this Saturday. But on Sunday, my older brother and sister were telling me that they had watched a movie and it was called Living in Bondage. And they talked a little bit about it and we moved on. And then later on that day, the TV was showing Living in Bondage again and I was going to watch it. And I remember the opening scene started and it was Nigerian characters. And it's, it's one of the things I had to explain, but I remember looking at the TV and just being confused, like, Maybe there's a mistake in the program. Why are these characters on TV? I couldn't even comprehend that a movie could be made by Nigerians, centered Nigerians told their stories. And that was such a, oh my God, moment for me because it was the first time I had ever seen us centered that way. I'd, I'm just saying like, I think it's heartbreaking that that, thought still exists. And I think what chips away at it is us telling our stories, us centering our stories, obsessing uh, with your books, with your writing. And also what I, I wanted to say, I should just I'm in awe of, of you going out to protest. I remember when I saw the news that you were arrested and I was, I was talking with my husband about it and trying to convey just my awe to him or just how impressed and blown away I was that you went out to protest and I was trying to explain to him that protesting in a country like Zimbabwe at least looking at it through my lens as a Nigerian like protesting there is not the same as protesting in the, protesting in the United States the point I was making to him is like in the Nigeria I grew up with the journalists who challenged the president who wrote um, things that exposed the corruption that was going on in government they vanished so when you grew up in a country where you you see that happening. What 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 the the military rulers do is that they they weed out dissent. You just learn to keep quiet. So people will talk in whispers in their living room. Like everybody complains about politics and what people are doing wrong, but you never speak out loud because doing it endangers your life. And so I was explaining to him like you don't understand what it means to go out and protest in a country where dissent is not tolerated. Like 
you, they will want to shut you up by any means necessary. And like, I'm not joking when I say by any means necessary. And I mean, we had this conversation weeks, like some weeks ago, and then last week, all the news came out from Nigeria about protesters being silenced by any means necessary. And it was just sad to see that even so many years later, like nothing has changed. And I remember telling my husband like this, this is why protesting in certain countries is such a, a dangerous act. It's, it's like you're really putting your life on the line when you do that. Yes, Njideka, uh, that is true. Uh, the situation in Zimbabwe had improved um, uh, around the time of the coup, 2018, 2019, um, the army was quite trigger happy and uh, there was a lot of protest about that. And with the international eye on Zimbabwe, um, it became necessary for people to be more circumspect in their behavior. So what we've seen this year it is abductions that were associated with the with the protests, um, but the army has not been as trigger happy as they had been in the in the last two years, you know. But for myself, um, when I decide I will do something and I've weighed things up in my mind, I I don't want to think about that because otherwise you won't do it, you know. Of course, every time. I go out because that wasn't the first time I'd been out. Every time I go out, I'm concerned about what might happen. But um, I was just trusting that things were a bit quieter now and hoping for the best. What can you do? Otherwise, you would never protest at all. I was also very fortunate that that protest happened just after my last novel, this mournable body had been long listed for the Booker Prize. And so that had been a few days before. And so my name was already in the international press. And so as soon as I was arrested, there were people who saw it happen and took photographs and video footage. And so the news went out. And it really is a good thing because since I already had that profile in the media, the story was picked up and that again brought attention to Zimbabwe, which, you know, people who do things that are evil basically do not generally want to be seen to be doing them. And so with that international attention on Zimbabwe, it meant that uh, some things that might have happened were now less likely to happen. And that was a good thing. I wanted to ask about the book. I'm glad you brought it up, um, Tsitsi, This Mournable Body, because, you know, as I read it, you know, I was I was surprised, as I think some reviewers were, by some of the changes that take place um, and and the the anger. And it, but it sounds like some of what you've been experiencing in Zimbabwe is bleeding into that change in the narrative away from a kind of almost optimistic potential, uh, which, which despite the complications is certainly how nervous conditions sort of ends. Yes, definitely. The situation in Zimbabwe now feeds to the environment uh, that I depict 
in this mournable body and the way the character moves through that environment and how she reacts to it. It is really very important for me to write literature that speaks to people about their present conditions, where they can recognize themselves in those conditions. And so for me to have written about a character who's really doing well, who is able to achieve her objectives in Zimbabwe, would really have been a stretch of the imagination. Or one would have had to have a character whose objectives are questionable, because we do have them. We have people who decide, okay, I'm going to join with an oppressive uh, party in order to benefit from being there. We have one uh, party leader, uh, Ms. Kupe, who is now the leader of the opposition, who is on video telling people, well, let's be honest, we get into politics for money. You know, so there are people like that, and I could have taken that kind of character. But again, it would not have been a positive narrative. So I, I don't know how I could have written about a woman who is trying to realize her ambitions and build a life for herself in a country that is in total decline, economically, morally, socially, politically, in terms of service delivery, um, it, it would not have been a story that had any human truth. And uh, I don't think that people would have responded to it because it sim simply would not have resonated with the, with the world that, that people are experiencing. Um, I may go on to maybe try these stories about people who are in higher places, but that is also so complex. And to be honest, when I look at those worlds and I see the kind of evil that props them up, I'm not really sure that I want to engage with it. I guess the question for both of you is what, what, can, be, what can and should be done in the face of of these complications. And these are, of course, very different situations. This is just a minor example of something I don't even, a question I don't ask anymore when I'm in Nigeria and I'm talking with friends or people I meet. You don't really ask people what they do because it can be an embarrassing question because there are so many people without jobs. The work I do now was really developed my second year of graduate school. And my time in graduate school was very difficult because I knew I had an idea of what I wanted the work to do. I knew I wanted to center it on Nigeria to talk about Nigeria as um, a space of difference, to talk about Nigeria as a space that is made up of, you know, there are different outside factors that have become interwoven with Nigeria to yield this new Nigerian culture that I wanted to talk about. Um, so there's their leftovers from when we were a British colony. There's American popular culture that was being consumed a lot in the country. And those two things mixed in with the different cultural, the different tribes from different parts of Nigeria to kind of create this space that was like a, a cultural hybrid in a very fascinating way. And it was a space that is constantly changing as different influences are coming and we're negating certain influences. So I knew that I wanted to 
to center, to have my work rest on that and using my life story to talk about this as someone who grew up in a town, had um, a connection to the village, went to a cosmopolitan city, then moved to the United States and all the complicated spaces I've experienced. So, but not also, not just my life, but also thinking of my parents and my grandparents. So once again, like thinking of Neva's condition, how each generation occupies a more complex space. So my grandparents who never left the village, to my parents who grew up in the village and then moved to town for higher education, to my generation who grew up in town, used to go to the village, moved to the city for higher education, and then a number of us left the country and now some are going back. So thinking of how the the experience for each generation changes. And now in my work, I've started thinking of even my kids who are inhabiting an even more complex space. Um, They are American, but being brought up by a Nigerian mother who is kind of like stressing her culture to them. And they're, you know, it's a space I don't really understand because I'm not, they're not talking yet to explain that to me. But anyway, why am I talking of all this? So I knew what I wanted the work to do, but when I was in graduate school, I had a hard time with my studio visits with my professors because it's like, I felt like nobody understood what I was trying to say, or there was a lot of, um, like, we don't know what you're trying to do. Why don't you make work about this? And then of course their, their recommendation is some like American understanding of Nigeria. Um, like, oh, why don't you make work about the, the conf- you know, it was always like the stuff you see in the news. And it was that single story, that, that one story that we keep getting reduced to. And I wanted to talk about a more complex space. And it was a very frustrating time for me because it just felt like with everybody I talked to, nobody understood or nobody was not, the people were not encouraging. Yeah, so I got so much pushback or just a lot of people feeling like we don't understand what you're trying to do. I mean, I got uh, an academic warning letter because they felt I was too lost, but I didn't feel lost in my head. It just felt like nobody could, could connect to the story I was trying to tell. And so it actually made me begin to question myself, like question the space I knew and an experience I had. Like if nobody is understanding my interest, am I making this up? Do I not know what I'm trying to say? Is this not a relevant story? And I think um, what nervous condition did for me. So one, it was like, oh my God, this is someone that is doing something similar to what I want to do. They are telling a story from a space they know. And this is valid. I mean, it was just something that simple, like the story you want to tell is valid, was so important to take away from that. Another thing that was very difficult for me to come to terms with was that I was so nervous that if I centered a Nigerian experience, especially since I was living in the United States, my art would be shown and consumed in the United States, Mostly, if I was centering a Nigerian experience, would people get it? And also because I wasn't interested 
interested in translating things for people. So within the work, I'm using a lot of photographs from Nigeria. A number of the photographs are very politically weighted. A number of them um, are about very important events or people in Nigeria, but I don't give any kind of translation. So if you're Nigerian, if you grew up in Nigeria in a certain time, you know exactly what those pictures are referencing. But if you're outside that space, you're locked out of that understanding. And that was a critique that came up a lot my second year in grad school. And I just felt like I couldn't explain to people how, like, I really am not interested in translating things for people. There are certain parts where who is centered, what is centered is a Nigerian experience. Like this growing up in Nigeria in the 80s and 90s, and if you're outside that space, it's just not for you in that moment. And like everything cannot be for you. And I kept getting pushback about that. And I just stayed questioning myself and reading something like Nervous Condition gave me, um, just made me believe more in what I was doing. Like seeing, I think something I really loved about the book is the, the lack of the explanatory comma, you know, it's like, um, like sadza comma, the, the meal made with corn that is eaten in blah, 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 comma, that's just not done. And, and just reading it and seeing that even though for me, I was clearly outside the space, there were things that weren't translated and I didn't understand those dialogues, but I could still follow the story was so heartening to see. You know, it made me say, like, yeah, see, this is possible. You can center in this one story, you can center a Zimbabwe homestead experience complete with things that are specific to that space and language and phrases and center them as your audience and someone outside me can still read it, enjoy it, appreciate it, even with those holes in my understanding of the text and so that was like um you know it was like something I saw that just gave me fuel to keep on with what I was doing um so I just want to say thank you to Sissy for for that that's a lovely story Jideka and I'm so glad that something that I did had a positive impact on you in that way something I consider in my work is I think of each piece as chapters in a book. And so actually thinking of all the works together as one continuous story. So that's a thread that has been really and um, enjoyable for me to see in the trilogy through Nervous Conditions, The Book of Naught, and This Moneyable Body. And I have a, a, some characters I work with. So the, I have this character of the Nigerian woman that is based on my life, but I do think of her as her own person and she's shown up a number of times. And I was thinking something, and I don't know if this is why you did it, but I'll speak for my own work. Something that I really enjoy with using one character and just kind of keeping her through multiple works over time is that it's almost like um, there is a shift. I'm trying to talk about a place that is shifting. So talking about Nigeria in my grandparents' time, talking about my Nigeria in my parents' time, 
talking about Nigeria in my time and even within my time, the time when I was there and Nigeria now is very different. So it's almost like as I'm talking about a place that is shifting, the hopeful times, the, you know, like right after independence was this period of hope um, with the discovery of oil, the British had left, everybody thought things would be perfect. And then that loss of hope and how corruption came in. Then there's the Nigerian Biafra war. And then the past decade or so, this coming up of hope again, as this cultural renaissance is happening. And as I'm looking at this shifts in time through the country, it's like almost like I'm, as I'm following the timeline of the country, it helps me to have this one constant that moves through the narrative I'm working with. And so it's like, it's almost like a, a mapping tool for me that helps me map the shifts in, in the space, in the country over time. No, it's very interesting that you say that in Judeca that uh, the storytelling is also mapping a place and, and the evolution and trajectory of a place. Because when I began Nervous Conditions, I was looking at that moment in time. And then I realized that a place has a trajectory of development, which also affects how people can be in that space. And it did become important for me to show that um, and to show how a person may negotiate one's life in a changing place. You know, for people who live in countries that have been relatively stable for, let's say, the last 40 years, changes in the actual place may not be so significant. But for somebody like me, I have lived through... Uh, the end of colonialism, as you say, that joyful, hopeful time, independence, and then the, the changing of that into a downward trajectory that I call a lowest common denominator society. And I have to be concerned with those things. I cannot pretend that they don't exist and impact how people can be. So I definitely do also map the changes in the place through the ways that people move through the space and react to it. Yeah, that's so beautiful. My one question um, was just a personal curiosity is in the new book, This Monable Body, the point of the storyteller changes. And I'm wondering if you're interested in talking about the, the, craft decision that came into that change? Yes. Judeka, um, I changed the point of view of the story in this mournable body because I felt alienated from Tambudzai as a character. And it, it's uh, related to the, the negativity that she embodies. And there were two aspects I felt I personally do not want to embody that negativity. Um, it reflected things that I wanted to talk about, but I didn't want to embody them myself. And then I also felt that if I did embody this kind of deep negativity that she has fallen into, that has come to her, from her country in decline, 
what would that experience be like for the reader in the first person? And I also felt that it probably would not have been a positive experience for the reader. I would have had to have told the story differently, but I wanted to plumb the depths of that negativity. I felt it was important. So I had to find a way of telling a story that is so full of energy that is not happy in a way that it didn't pull the reader right into that world, but allowed the reader to be part of it. And so that's how that second person came up, because I thought sometimes when something happens to a person, that person will go to someone else and start saying, oh, um, what happens when you, you know, we do that when we speak. We use that second person sometimes to talk about things that have happened to ourselves. And so that then was the solution for Tambudzai, who had been speaking in the first person before, to tell this story. The last thing I wanted to talk about was I had mentioned earlier how I was making work that centered my experience and my life in Nigeria, but something that has kind of been in the fore of my mind, especially kind of like reading Nervous Conditions and the Book of Knots and This Moneyable Body again, is how even though I really feel like I'm centering the narrative I know in the work, being aware for myself that there is a part of it that that has been like shaped by living in the United States. And I'll explain better. I think just when, when I decided to make art, so I had moved to Nigeria for a year to have the conversation with my parents and I came back to the United States and I went back to school. I went to art school and I've been doing art since, but I was trying to develop what I wanted the work to be. There was also a part of me that was very angry and frustrated by how I felt people perceived Nigeria. And so I wanted to use my work to counter that, to feel like, okay, these people just have this very basic understanding of Nigeria, if at all. Like people ask me the most ignorant questions and I wanted to show the Nigeria I grew up in. But now I'm at a point where I feel like I was so interested in countering the negatives that I might have focused on the positives a bit too much. In my mind, I've always felt like I centered myself and Nigeria and my Nigerian experience. But over the past few years, really questioning if my narrative has been affected by the outside opinion of Nigeria. But there is a lot that is wrong in the country. And feeling like my work doesn't quite touch up on all those things. Like there are references in the pictures here and there, but they're a little bit um, subdued. And I think just talking again about things reading the trilogy again and the things I'm influenced by and want to kind of like <laughs> incorporate into my work is I really admire how you don't shy away from the painful and the difficult. But, you know, it's kind of like how people say, oh, you don't air your family laundry in public or you can, there are things you keep close to the house or like close to your heart or there are things you whisper with your family and you don't shout it outside. 
and in 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 playing down those i'm actually doing my narrative a disservice i don't know if any of this is resonating is making sense or resonating with you but i love how um it's like thinking of for instance just nervous conditions that's like most hopeful one but tambzai is this incredible industrious character who is looking ahead, looking forward, wants a better life for herself. But even within this beautiful, hopeful story, you don't shy away from showing the problems she's working through or like the things that that hold her back as she's trying to move away and achieve her dreams. And Jideka, I love your work. And when I look at it, it speaks to me in an authentic voice, but I do not look at it and I say, I don't know that. That is not true. I look at it and I say, yes. So I think you're presenting another reality. And as an African, I am glad to have someone depicting that side of our life with love and compassion as well. But then there's also the fact that Zimbabwe and Nigeria had different kinds of colonial history and the kind of settler colonization that we had in Zimbabwe was uh, a very degrading kind of colonization where very little of our own indigenous culture survived. So it is very difficult for people uh, to celebrate uh, their own old ways of life. We have this imposed on us from the top where the government says now we have to look at this and now we have to look at that but it isn't really endemic in the people's lives anymore because of that colonial uh, situation um then there's something else also that for me is very important when i think about this and i have to gather my thoughts also the kind of civilization that we had in zimbabwe pre-independence was not continuous like it was in West Africa, where people can go back over their dynasties and relate their history. And again, I think that's because with no settler colonization, there was a bit more continuity. But even apart from that, you know, we, we had Great Zimbabwe around the 15th century, and then that civilization disappeared. And it is said that people don't know what happened. You know, so we have a lot of discontinuity in Zimbabwe. And this affects who we are. We don't really know who we are. We can't look back to say, yes, this is the vibrant, happy, productive side of Zimbabwean culture. We had it very, very briefly for a few years after independence. You know, if you look at Zimbabwe after independence, the writers were in the country. Now they have gone. There are very few practicing writers left in the country. People are now outside the country. And so I think we have a very different uh, current social situation. And I would just say, please continue with what you're doing. Speak about the things that that you love, that give you joy, uh, that 
you want to say, yes, this exists also. I think it is absolutely what you need to do. And I thank you also for it because I feel that when I look at your work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's so good. You know, I've been thinking of um, it's like Black joy, celebrating Black joy is important. Celebrating Black love, Black accomplishments, um, Black history. It just the, the like I mentioned earlier, the last few years have been tough. Where I feel um, as a black immigrant woman in the United States, there's just this anger that you have carried with me for almost four years now, and you know it's just it's it's overwhelming, it's overpowering. Sometimes it makes it hard to work, and I've I've kept that quite separate from my work because I almost feel like if, if I let it in, I don't know if I can control it or that I'm just like scribbling obscenities on a piece of paper. Um, but also wondering if there's, there are ways to make space for it since it's such a part of my daily preoccupation. But you're, um, I want to say thank you and you're right. I do want to preserve this celebration of Black joy that I love to do. Um, I love the country I grew up in, the good parts of it. And I like having the chance to share that with people. And Judeka, I'm sure the other aspects of being that are important and powerful within you will find their way at the right time. So it isn't an either or, it's a, per, it's a process of unfolding and coming into being. Um, so even as you talk about the anger, this is something that you will inevitably, I am sure, begin to grapple with in your work. And since you cannot but produce beauty, we can expect great things. Thank you. That feels like a beautiful note to end on. And I want to say, Cece, thank you so much for your time, for your work. Thank you so much. It's an amazing thing for me to have a platform to speak about these things, my work and the situation which informs my work. Good luck with the Booker Prize. Yeah, that's very true. We're all rooting for you. I tell myself it's a one in six chance, so just keep cool and we'll see what happens. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. <laughs>